Um, We have two readings today. Our first reading is in Luke, um, and that's 24, 1 through 12. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here, he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hand of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of the linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Our second reading is in Romans 8, 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the, par- neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone, and let me say happy Easter to you. My name's James. I'm here on the staff, and it's a great pleasure to be able to teach you God's word this morning as we come on this Easter Sunday to think about the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray together as we begin. Let's pray. Risen and reigning Lord Jesus, we pray that this morning you would come and show us your extraordinary love. We pray that your love that conquered death will be made clear to us as we look at Romans together. And we pray that we'd leave rejoicing, celebrating in the victory that has been won. And we pray all this in your name. Amen. What difference would it make to your life if you knew that God was for you? If you knew that he was relentlessly on your side, relentlessly working for your good, What difference would it make as you wake up in the morning wondering what the day's going to hold? As you look forward to the future, 
what difference would it make if you knew that there was a God who was for you and on your side? When I was, uh, when I was back in secondary school, I was once um, picked to be on the team of the, um, our school, uh, the UK Math Challenge, the Team Math Challenge. Now, it probably wasn't the highlight of my school career, but I was inside secretly proud, but I was trying to play it cool, at least as cool as you can be if you've been picked for a Team Math Challenge. But secretly, inside, I was nervous. I was very nervous. I was afraid of failure. I was afraid that I was going to arrive, and with all the opposition, the opposing schools, that there'll be someone cleverer than me. Imagine that. (laughs) But actually, I was scared. I was terrified. I was terrified that I was going to fail, that the team was going to lose. And all the fears were stacking up. I was worried that, you know, what would my brother say if we didn't do very well at home, it was going to be bad? What at school, if, I, it was, if we came back as failures, what, what, were we going to, what was I going to think? I was scared. Now, the day arrived and we traveled to the, the school where we were taking part in this team math challenge. And it took about 15 minutes for my fear to disappear. And it had nothing to do with me. Nothing at all to do with me. You see, on our team of four, there was a boy called Johnny in the year above. And Johnny is genuinely the the cleverest person I've ever met. And I hadn't quite realized. And then we got there and I just realized, this guy is a genius. Absolute genius. I mean, it almost felt like cheating having him on your team. He just answered every single question. In fact, by the end of it, some of the organizers were asking him how it was that he was answering the questions. And they were looking to him to work out how, how, how could you do it so quickly? He was just a genius. And as soon as I realized that he was on our team, he was for us, the fear went. I could sit back. I could actually enjoy being there. I could enjoy taking part in this math challenge. Him being for us guaranteed ultimate victory. Now, if you take that and you expand it by infinity, you get something of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8. He's saying that God is for us. Just look down at verse 31 again. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is coming to the end of a section in the book of Romans that runs from chapter 5 to chapter 8. And a few verses earlier, if you just look back to verse 28, he makes this astounding promise. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In everything, God is working for good. That is the good of bringing us safely home to heaven, changing us to be like Jesus. And then in verse 31, he says, God is for us. We know that he is always for us, on our side, working for our good to bring us home to heaven. Christians should know that in every moment, God is working for their good. He's not neutral. He's not indifferent. He's not against us. He is for us if we're trusting in Jesus. And Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39 is a celebration of that truth. And it's a particular joy to turn to these verses on Easter Sunday, because as we go through, we'll see that that hope in God being for us is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus. His confidence is based on the fact that Jesus is alive. And so as we come to these verses this morning, whether we call ourselves Christians or not, as we come to see what God has done for us in Jesus, 
I hope we'll all come to deeper confidence that our God is for us. Now, the way the passage works, I think, is that in verses 31 to 32, Paul establishes his point. He establishes his point that Easter guarantees that God is for us. And then he gives two examples about how that works out. That we're justified on the day of judgment and that we're loved on the day of suffering. So that's what we're going to work through this morning. So firstly, Easter guarantees that God is for us. Let's read verses 31 and 32 again. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? How is it that Paul, who wrote these words, can be so certain that God is for us? And so nothing can stand in the way of his plan to get us safely home to heaven as we trust Jesus. It's because Easter reveals to us a God of extraordinary generosity. Just look at verse 32 again. He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He argues from the, the greater to the less. He says, in the past, God has given you the most amazing thing, his son. He's given him up for you. And so how now, as you look forward to the future, how will he not also give you everything you need on the way to heaven? He is a God who's extraordinarily generous. And you'll see in verse 32, he focuses on two things, the person and the purpose. The person and the purpose. Do you see that the person he gives in verse 32 is his own son? He gave up his own son. I don't know if you've ever been bowled over by someone's generosity to you. I came across an article just last month in the Metro um, about a, a lady named Natalie Hawkins. Natalie Hawkins lives in Wales. She's a, a mother of three in her 40s. And it, when the snow was falling and it was freezing cold outside, she, in a, in a throwaway comment to her son, said, I'd hate to be homeless on a day like today. And her son said back to her, well, mum, I know that there's a homeless guy who's living just, um, just down the road. He's been living in a tent for the last 10 months. His name is Kieran. And his mum said, well, you need to go and get him. Go and get him. Come and bring him in. And so Natalie Hawkins took in this young homeless man, brought, her, brought him into her house, clothed him, fed him, gave him a place of warmth. And then they set up a crowdfunding page and raised over £6,000 for him, provided a, a, a job for him to keep going. And now she said he can stay until he's got somewhere to live permanently. Imagine you're that man, what extraordinary generosity to receive. Look down at verse 32. God did not spare his own son, his own son. God gave his precious son for us. The son whom he has loved and delighted in for all eternity was handed over to die on a cross. The king of heaven treated as a criminal. The creator spat on by his creation. The eternal one facing death, light of the world given over to darkness. God gave his own son. 
There's nothing more precious that God could have given, nothing more valuable in the entire universe than his own son, which he gave. That's the person. But what was the purpose? Why was he given? Well, verse 32 says, but God gave him up for us all. He gave him up for us. The life of Jesus was given for our life. He was given up for us. It was a sacrifice. If you went to um, Postman's Park, which is over in the city of London, you'll find there something called the Memorial to Heroic Self-Sacrifice. On this memorial, there are different plaques that are put for um, people who have given their lives to rescue others. Most of them are from over 100 years ago. But on these little plaques, they've started putting up some new ones about people who've given their lives for others. And they're, they're very striking. Let me read a few of them to you. They're very brief. Joseph Andrew Ford, aged 30, Metropolitan Fire Brigade, saved six persons from fire in Gray's Inn Road, but in his last heroic act, he was scorched to death. October 7th, 1871. Solomon Gallimon, aged 11, died of injuries, September the 6th, 1901, after saving his little brother from being run over in Commercial Street. He said, Mother, I saved him, but I couldn't save myself. Henry James Bristow, aged eight, at Walthamstow, on December the 30th, 1890, saved his little sister's life by tearing off her flaming clothes, but caught fire himself and died of burns and shock. Extraordinary self-sacrifice. A life given up for someone else. That's just a little picture picture of what happened at the cross as Jesus died. His life was given up for us. His life for ours. The clearest place and possibly the passage where Paul, that Paul had in mind as he wrote this was Isaiah 53. Let me read two verses from that chapter. It says this, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds, we are healed. Like sheep, we have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On that first Good Friday, why was Jesus given up for us? For our sin, our rebellion, our wandering away from God. He took the punishment I deserved. It was him for us, his life for ours. He was given up for us. On Good Friday, the greatest person in the universe suffered the greatest humiliation in his death on the cross to deal with our most desperate need, our sin being taken away. And our God says, here you go, have him. I'll give him up. I won't spare him. I'll give him for you. Easter reveals a God to us who is more generous than we could ever imagine. A God of generosity Paul says, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Paul wants us to think, if God would give us his son, if he would give us the one who is the most precious in the universe, if he would give him up to die on a cross in the worst possible way for us, why would we think that he wouldn't give us what we need as we go forward on the way to heaven? If he would give us his son, Why will he not graciously give us everything we need? 
all that we need to get us home to heaven, transformed to be like Jesus. God says, here you go, have him, have my son. But of course, I don't know about you, but the, the doubts do creep in about God's generosity, don't they? They do creep in. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I find that distorted views of God start popping into my head, twisting his overwhelming grace, overwhelming generosity into something hideous. Perhaps you thought about this, um, God as Ebenezer Scrooge, a God who is stingy, a God who in our, in our desperate need, he says, no, you just make do with what you've got. I'm not going to give you anything. I don't know if you've ever had that sort of idea of God popping into your head. Or maybe, maybe God is the distant CEO who's so busy dealing with the big affairs of the universe that he, well, he's not going to help me. My problems are too small. He just says, no, no, go away. Come back when you've got something bigger to worry about. What about God as the, the market trader who is very willing to give to us as long as we have the right thing to give back to him in return? The price is right, he'll help us. But if we don't have the goods, then he's not going to give us what he has. When we have those views of God, it, it can so easily paralyze our Christian lives. We think that we, we have to do something to get his generosity. We have to do something to earn his love. We worry that we won't make it to heaven, that there's no point praying, no point asking him for any help. And Easter says they're not true. Easter says that God is extraordinarily generous, that God has given us his son, that he's given him up for our most desperate need. And so we can trust that, well, he can give us everything that we need as we go to heaven. What confidence this gives us to trust in his provision. The cross shouts to us that God is more generous than we can even imagine. So as we come and kneel at the foot of the cross, we find a God who gives, who gives lavishly, who gives freely, and a God who we can trust to give us everything that we need. But there's more. Paul then takes this truth of God's generosity to us, and he applies it to two of the sharpest experiences of life, the day of judgment and a day of suffering, the future day and the day in the present now. And as we'll see, the cross and then the resurrection of Jesus gives us absolute confidence that our God is for us. So let's move on and look at the first example, justified on the day of judgment. Look down with me at verses 33 and 34. Paul says this, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul takes us into a, a courtroom. It's the final day of judgment, the future day when each one of us stands before God. We have our lives compared to his law, and he sits in the place of judgment, and he has the power to either condemn or to justify. He has the power to declare our lives guilty, unable to enter heaven and sent to hell or justified. That is, you're not guilty and you're welcome to come in. Come into heaven. It's the courtroom. It's the day of judgment. And we're standing in the dock. Each one of us will have our lives assessed. 
And when faced with that prospect, there's no doubt that we might start to wonder whether God is for us. As the accusations start coming in about the things that we've done wrong, we might start to panic. Maybe at this point, this crucial moment, our God will not be for us. Do you remember that time when you told the lie to cover up your mistake, when you lost your temper at the person in your family, when you gossiped about your friend, when you just forgot about God or ignored him completely? Do you remember? And the accusations come pouring in and we're standing before God and we think we've got no chance. Is he really going to be for us now? When heaven and hell are at stake, who wouldn't be terrified? And yet, look at Paul's tone in verse 33 and 34. He says, who's going to bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. How can Paul be confident on the day of judgment? How can he be confident that God is going to say, justified, you're welcome into heaven? Well, Jesus makes all the difference. Look at verse 34. The second bit, Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Paul says, your hope that God is for you on judgment day is because Jesus is there interceding. He's your lawyer. He's going to be there. And the only way that's possible is if he's been raised from the dead. The fact that Jesus is raised from the dead means that we can have absolute confidence on judgment day. Now, it's not that Jesus is just very good at finding loopholes. And I don't know if you've come across the, the lawyer, Nick Freeman, who's been nicknamed in the press, Mr. Loophole. He's most famous for finding loopholes um, that help his clients, often celebrities, not face the um, punishment for crimes they've been accused of committing. And he's even written a book called The Art of the Loophole, Making a Law Work for You. That's not what Jesus is like at all. It's not that he's Mr. Loophole. It's in fact, he's our representative. He's the lawyer who intercedes for us. For those who trust in Jesus, as you stand there in the courtroom on the day of judgment, Jesus is there for you, your representative. His life represents your life. His death is in your place. And so there is no condemnation, no one there to condemn. As we stand there, and we might start worrying about our sin, because Jesus is standing there, goes, no, no, I've died for that. It's been paid It's been sorted. I was given for you. I'm there and it's been done. Sin has been paid for. There's no accusation. And when you wonder, am I good enough to get into heaven? Jesus says, no, no, I'm there. I represent you. And my life is good enough to get to heaven because that's where I am right now at the right hand of God. I'm already there. My life is good enough to get into heaven and I represent you. And so what's the verdict that comes back? Justified. You can come into heaven. It is God who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? No one. Because Jesus is there. He represents us. And if Jesus represents us, no one can condemn us. You know, that's the reason why the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is is central, is fundamental to the Christian faith. It's not an optional extra because our hope of entering heaven rather than hell on judgment day rests on Jesus being alive being at the right hand of God, being in the courtroom, being able to speak on our behalf, to be able to say that our sins have been paid for and on the basis of his life, we are welcome into heaven. If he didn't rise from the dead, then our sins are not paid for. If he didn't rise from the dead, there's no one to be our representative. If his body rotted away in an unmarked grave outside Jerusalem, then there is no help and no hope on judgment day. 
But as the women who came to the tomb found, he is not here. He's risen. And because he's risen, when judgment day comes, we have confidence, absolute confidence, as we step into that courtroom, that God is for us and that the words we hear will hear are justified, not condemned. Now, look, I don't have time to, to walk you through all the evidence of the physical resurrection of Jesus. I believe the evidence is compelling. And I'd love to talk to you afterwards if you're unsure. But all, all I wanted to do was to show you why it matters that Jesus is alive, why it gives us hope and confidence today on Easter Sunday. His resurrection guarantees that he is there to represent us before God. That our sins are paid for and that his life is enough to get us into heaven because he's already there. Of course, that leaves us asking the question, are we trusting in that Jesus? As we walk into that courtroom, is he there as our representative as we trust in him? If he's not, I'd love you to think about that. I'd love you to consider again whether you should put your trust in Jesus as the one who can be your hope and your help on judgment day to get you through to heaven. If you're trusting in the risen Jesus, know for certain on Easter Sunday that when judgment day comes, the words you'll hear are justified. There is no one who can condemn. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, you have hope, the hope of eternal life. So that's the first example, justified on the day of judgment. The second is loved on the day of suffering. Look down with me at verses 35 to 39. Verse 35 to 39. Paul writes this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to the slaughter. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Three times in these verses, Paul confidently declares the unbreakable love of God and his love for us now. We've looked forward to the future day of judgment, but now he's talking about suffering in the present. Suffering here, right now. Of course, suffering is something that makes us doubt that God is for us. It's when things are hard that we start to wonder, God, why are you letting this happen? God, how could this be for my good? God, do you still really love me? God, it feels like you're working against me. When suffering comes, that's when we're most tempted to think those thoughts. And yet in the middle of hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the threat of execution, when Paul feels as helpless and vulnerable as a sheep being taken to the slaughterhouse, he is still utterly confident that God loves him and is for him and that he's going to be more than a conqueror in this situation. He knows that God's love will not be broken. God's love will not be broken. I don't know if you know that, um, that April is the start of the breeding season for penguins in Antarctica. You probably didn't know that, but it is. And emperor penguins, when they... Um, give birth to one of their little eggs. It gets born and is sort of incubated throughout the winter period. Now, Antarctica is very cold. 
Minus 30 degrees in winter, there are winds of up to 120 miles an hour. It is the most brutal place that you can imagine, probably one of the most inhospitable on the planet. And this little egg, vulnerable little egg, is hatched in the most brutal situation. How can it survive? Well, the dad of this little egg that's been hatched takes the egg and for almost 65 days stands in the brutal cold and the brutal winds and holds this little egg in a little pouch in front and just stands there for 65 days, day after day after day. And it does not move. It doesn't eat. It just stands there holding on to this little egg, making sure that in the most brutal situation, it's going to survive. It's going to be okay. And it does that. By the end of the winter, the the dad has often lost 50% of its body weight just because it's been standing there not eating. Such is its love for this little egg. And after 65 days, the egg is hatched. Nothing is going to separate that dad from its little egg. It's going to keep it safe. And Paul's confidence is that nothing is going to separate us from God's love, even the most brutal conditions, the most brutal suffering. You know, it helps to know that the person who wrote these words suffered greatly. He's not just speaking theoretically, he is speaking personally here. In another book in the Bible, he describes some of his experiences. Paul writes, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I've been shipwrecked. I've spent a night and day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger, thirst, and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is a man who knows what suffering is. And yet he says, in the midst of the most intense suffering, God's love is unbreakable. His love is unbreakable. He knows that nothing will be able to separate him from it. Absolutely nothing. How can Paul have such confidence? How can he know that? How can he be sure that nothing is going to separate him from God's love? The previous verse has just told us about Christ Jesus who died. More than that has been raised. More than that who is at the right hand of God interceding. And you'll see in verse 39 at the very end, he he understands that the love of God is in Christ Jesus. The love of God is in Christ Jesus. See, as Paul is thinking about the love of God, he is inevitably drawn back to think of Jesus. And when he thinks of Jesus' death, and when he thinks of Jesus' resurrection, and when he thinks of Jesus being in heaven, that is what gives him absolute confidence that God loves him and that that love cannot be broken. It's a love that has conquered death. If Jesus is still dead, then this love is almost an empty sentiment. And yet Jesus is not dead, he's risen. He's alive, he's at the right hand of God. His focus shifts back to Jesus and his death and resurrection, which is the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us in giving his son to deal with our most desperate need. And then in breaking death and raising him to life, he now sits in heaven forever for us. 
One of my favorite hymns puts it like this. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember? Who can cease to sing his praise? Who He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. It's the death of Jesus and the resurrection that conquered death that puts him at the right hand of God forever that says that love cannot be broken. He is there in heaven and he'll be there forever. And while he's there, his love cannot be broken. What more could God possibly do to persuade you that he loves you than in giving his son to death for us? What more could he possibly do to persuade you that not even death or Satan or evil can beat his love than in raising Jesus from the dead and raising him to heaven? What more could he possibly do to persuade you that he's never going to leave us than putting his son in heaven and saying he's there forever, he's there, he's not going anywhere, he's alive. Now, if we want certainty about the love of God, we shift our eyes back to the cross where Jesus was given for us. We shift our eyes to the empty tomb to know that he's beaten death. We shift our eyes up to heaven and we know that he's there for us forever and that his love cannot be broken. He loves us with such an unbreakable love that we can remain confident with Paul through whatever suffering he allows us to endure. Of course, these are easy words to say, much harder to believe, much harder to live. When suffering comes, it's hard. And yet Paul wants us to remain confident by looking at Jesus. This week, I've been reading a bit about Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere is a Christian, Christian missionary. She died a couple of years ago in her 90s. But she became a Christian, trusted in Jesus when she was um, at university. She studied medicine. And when she was aged 28, she left, um, she left the UK and went over to the northeast Congo. Helen Roosevelt trained nurses. She ran a hospital and she told people about Jesus. But in 1964, the civil war broke out in Congo. And as part of that, the hospitals were shut down and Helen Roosevelt was put under house arrest. She was there for five months and endured a a fairly brutal captivity. She was abused physically and sexually. It was the most horrible situation. She wrote this in a book years later, reflecting on what she found in the middle of her suffering. Listen to what she says. She said, they found me, dragged me to my feet, struck me over head and shoulders, flung me to the ground, kicked me, dragged me to my feet, only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouthful of sticky blood, my glasses gone, beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear, driven, dragged, pushed back to my own house, yelled at, insulted, cursed. Through the brutal, heartbreaking experience, God met with me with outstretched arms of love. It was an unbelievable experience. He was so utterly there, so totally understanding, his comfort so complete. And suddenly I really knew that his love was unutterably sufficient. He did love me. I knew that Philippians 4.19, which says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his glory, his riches in glory in Christ Jesus was true. Here is a woman who found her God meeting her with outstretched arms of love in the middle of the most brutal suffering. Convinced that 
death, life, angels, demons, present, future, power, nothing in all creation could separate her from God's love. As she looked at Jesus and realized his love for her was unutterably sufficient. A Christian can know for certain that God loves them, even in the midst of suffering, and that nothing will be able to break that love. His love is unbreakable. So this Easter, can I call you once more to fix your eyes on Jesus, on Jesus' death, on his resurrection, and see that God is for you as you trust in him, as you know Jesus, as you trust in him. I want you to see God in his extraordinary generosity, giving his son for you. I want to see you to see him freely giving his precious son, raising him from the dead, putting him in heaven at his right hand, and know that he is for you. That on judgment day, on the day of suffering, and every other day in between, because Jesus is alive, he is for you, and he loves you, and nothing will ever break God's love for you in Jesus. Let's pray as we close. Father God, we thank you for your love. We thank you that in sending your son to die for us and in raising him from the dead and putting him at your right hand, we can have absolute confidence that you love us and that you're for us. Please, this Easter Sunday, would you help us all to fix our eyes once more on Jesus and to know that if you are for us, nothing can be against us as you take us home to heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.